Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, thanks again for being here with us. My name is Scott, the lead pastor here. If I've not had the privilege of meeting you yet, I sure would love to do that. And whether maybe you're watching online or here in person, uh, just really counted a privilege to be a part of your weekend, share fellowship with you, and um, also maybe to be a part of your spiritual journey and to be a part of what God's doing in your heart. This weekend, we're going to do something that's a little, little different. We are continuing uh, our series called Stops Along the Way, and we're in the book of Mark. As Peter, Simon Peter, as an old man, he's now in his 50s, 60s, 30 years after this ministry with Jesus, he's retelling John Mark all about Jesus of Nazareth and what he had to teach his disciples And today we're going to look at a topic that I think is actually uh, really important. We're going to look at a topic that's challenging, though. It's the topic of marriage and sexuality and divorce. What all of this is, how it's supposed to work, how we understand it, what's God's design for all of this. And, and the reason I think this is an important topic to look at this weekend is because I've recognized in my own heart that this critical relationship, this critical reality and component of sexuality and relationships and marriage, that it's actually a really challenging aspect of our humanity. In fact, I think if you sat down with most counselors, you'd find out that most of their caseload, 90% of their caseload, I'm making that statistic up, that most of it is, but, mo- but 80% of statistics are made up on the spot, right? Um, I think most of their caseload would, would tie back to these realities of relationships. Marriage relationships, their sexuality, how do we navigate all this stuff? things that are falling apart and they need help. And the reality is, too, that like I'm working and in relationship with you guys, and I see these sorts of themes pop up all the time. Relationships, conflicts, how we resolve that, what God wants from us in the middle of all of that. And then there's this kind of third layer to the conversation as well, like, what the thoughts and the feelings are of people that are outside of the church, looking at the church, and and maybe they have this opposing view of what marriage means and what it's about, and it's just kind of got this confusion and this fluidity to it, and then there's these gender issues. How are we supposed to understand all this stuff? And as I process this, I'm also thinking about my own children who are, who are being brought up in an environment, who are growing up in this environment where honestly, if I were to use one word to represent all of that, this one word, confusing. It's just confusing. And listen, listen. If we don't, as a church, step into the middle of that and bring clarity to what Jesus had to say about all of that, then we're just letting them be blown around like a paper in the wind. I remember back some 20 some odd years ago when I was a young man dating a young woman, processing, heading into marriage, starting to think about that. And I even had godly examples of what marriage was, but I remember at that point in time, 
feeling that same level of confusion as well. I remember even thinking, I wish my church would speak clearly about what Jesus had to say about marriage and sexuality and and how two people come together and how is this even supposed to work. So what I want to do this weekend as we're continuing the series is we're just going to look at one of these stops along the way where Jesus is speaking with some disciples that are confused about the same topic and people in the community that were confused about the same kind of thing. And we just want to stop and look at this issue and, and ask the question, how do we live this out? How does God feel about it? How do we respond to it? But can I just say as I start this out that I have written and rewritten this message three to four times this weekend. I, I have a lot of fear and trembling because I know that this is a nuanced conversation with a lot of complexity behind every single issue. And I also know that there's a lot of hurt in this area and there's so much hurt outside of the church as people even think about the church and how we've responded to these critical issues of our relationships, but there's also hurt inside the church People who are navigating current relationships that are challenged and stressed right now, and there's hurt there. And there's hurt because there's people who have relationships that might be in their rearview mirror. Some of them are closer than they want and wish they were further away, and there's hurt in this area too. And quite frankly, the church has not always done well at navigating this conversation with grace and with nuance and with compassion and with tenderness. And I, I just don't want to mess that up. But I also don't want to fail to speak clearly about something that God's spoken about. So I want to look at this passage and I want to consider these points and, and, and look to bring some clarity where there might be some confusion. But if I can, can we just pray one more time together because I need it, okay? You can pray for your pastor today. Holy Spirit, I'm just, uh, I'm grateful, God, that the words that are spoken when we speak from your word are not sourced because it's like man's idea. God, we want what's spoken to be from you and your lips. God, we ask that your spirit would be present in the midst uh, of all of this. And even as we tug on some of these threads that are clearly things that Jesus has spoken, recognizing that as we pull on that, there's hurt there. God, I want your spirit to be in the middle of that. And healing and restoring because that's the God that you are. And you can do that. In Christ's name, amen. So if you have an orange Bible that you're under your seats, you can turn it to page 690. Or if you have your own Bible, you can turn in or on that Bible to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and we're just going to work our way through this, and we're going to try to pull some things out from the text and into our own hearts as we understand this. Mark chapter 10, it says this. It says, Jesus then left that place, and he went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Now, Dan, go ahead and show this map. We've been using this map 
kind of help us understand Jesus' travels. When he starts his ministry, he, it's a little hard to see from this distance, but there's the Sea of Galilee and the area of Capernaum up atop, and that whole area was rural. There were small farming villages, wasn't a lot of influence. People that came from that space were like, you know, they lived up in the sticks. They were just kind of discounted, but Jesus starts his ministry in that space, going from town to town, telling them about the kingdom of God. Mark 1 says that he shows up, and he says, the time has come. You've been waiting. The kingdom of God is here because the king is here. A new kind of kingdom is, is here. So listen, re- repent and believe it. Face it and embrace it. Not this negative kind of scorn repent, but this you don't want to miss it because God is doing something new. And Jesus has been in that reason, in region and he's preaching the gospel of, 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 of the kingdom of God. And now he's making his way down to the area of Judea, which is near Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the seat of power. In order to get from Galilee up and top down to Judea, you had to travel through Samaria. It was these people that the Jews really didn't like. They were like half-breeds, and so you didn't want to, you, you walked quickly through Samaria, but it was still five, six, seven days journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, and Jesus is making that journey towards Jerusalem. He's in the region, and it says this, and again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. People gather near him. He did these miracles. He healed the blind He brought together those people who were sinners and outcasts. He brought them near and gave them dignity. As a result, people flocked to him as a teacher. Verse two, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking him a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Matthew, the disciple, wrote a a parallel account and he adds this phrase. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So there's confusion for them there. There's these relationships, two people. There's this marriage, they've come together, they've made this covenant before God, till death do us part. And in this case, specifically saying there's this man and he wants to divorce his wife. When is this okay? When is this okay? And, and actually, this is a loaded question for Jesus because it turns out that the teachers of the law couldn't even agree upon what was the right answer to this. Is it okay for someone who has said before God, till death do us, depart, do, till death do us part, that, that is it okay for them to be divorced? They couldn't agree. And so there were actually two camps There were teachers of the law that sided with a guy named Hillel, and this is what Hillel would say. He would say that you could divorce your wife for any reason. So if she didn't cook well, if she put on some pounds, if she looked at you cross-eyed, if she just made you upset and her jokes weren't any, any good anymore, you could just divorce her and be done with it. There was another teacher, his name was Shammai, he taught this, he taught that only sexual sin, only sexual immorality, being unfaithful to your spouse, that was the only thing that made it just and right to divorce. And so they would squabble about this because again, man, these were... These were were teachers that were in different camps and you would kind of pick which team you wanted to be on and so there was arguments about all of that and they come to Jesus and they say, which camp are you in? But I just want to stop 
And I want you to think about the question. Don't like write it down or anything, but I want you to answer the question. Is it morally or biblically okay for someone to get a divorce for any reason? For any reason. And I actually think this is an unbelievably applicable question for us to consider. What if my happiness is at stake? What if we just don't love each other anymore? What if he has changed, she's a totally different person? What if I don't love her anymore? Can I just divorce him if he's offended me? Now, I'm going to say something that might surprise you, especially if you grew up in church. But divorce is actually a biblical idea. It's actually a biblical concept. God didn't create it, but he recognizes it and he regulates it. He recognizes it as just and right in certain circumstances, but he regulates it. He regulates it not because he's a prude, not because he's old-fashioned. He regulates it because there are people behind those divorces. And listen, he cares about his people, and his commands are always for the holiness and well-being of his people. So Jesus replies to them when he asks this question, and he answers this. He says, well, verse 3, what did Moses command you? He replied, Last week, what we talked about is that Jesus was really frustrated because there were these teachers of the law, and they said, well, we know there's the written law, this commandments that God gave Moses on the top of the mountain that became the Ten Commandments and the written law. We know that's true, but they believed in the oral Torah, the oral law that was never written down. God must have just told Moses, and Moses told Joshua, and Joshua told the priests, and the priests would pass it on. So the religious leaders thought that they were the gatekeepers of this kind of oral tradition. Jesus was frustrated and furious with this because what they would do is they would say, here are our traditions. Here are the things that we think. Here are the pressures in our culture And we're going to hold that as authoritative and more important than what God has clearly already told us. And that infuriated Jesus. So in this case, Jesus says, okay, 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 okay. I know you've got these camps going on, but what did God actually tell us? He double clicks on that. They said, verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. He says, it was because of your hearts were hard. Jesus responds to this. He says, it's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Why did Moses permit it? If a marriage commitment is till death do us part, why did Moses permit it to happen? Here's why, here's why. Because he was reacting to pagan cultures around the Hebrews and ancient Israel that was starting to increase its influence on these, uh, on these Hebrews and it was starting to creep in and for them it was easy to divorce and they were able to be flippant about it and as a result it left the women and specifically the women in this situation were left cut off were left victimized because their husbands were jerks Right? In these ancient cultures, women were considered to be property. They weren't allowed to vote. Well, they didn't really have voting, but they, they didn't, their, their, their 
Their opinions weren't admissible in the court of law. They weren't allowed to own property. So listen, the well-being of a woman was tied to her family, to her father and to her mother. She, she, in order to meet her needs, she was tied to her family, and then she would be get married to her husband. The only way that she could have a future and a life and social interactions, the only way she could provide for herself was being tied to one of these two things. So a woman without a husband was someone to be pitied. She didn't have a way to meet her needs economically and societally. So Jesus is saying Moses permitted this. God permitted this. And he, he, he said divorce is not a good thing, but if it's going to happen, Let's put some guardrails around it so that society can function in a just, in a right way so that it can minimize damage. Listen, Moses speaking for God, he permitted it. God didn't create it, but he was permitting it so that if a husband was gonna divorce his wife, she wouldn't be discarded. She wouldn't be abandoned with no way to care for herself. So if he was going to divorce her, he needed to provide a certificate of divorce. Now, why was that important? Because if she tries to move on with her life, she needs to have some way of demonstrating to someone else, hey, I've been released from this covenant that I've engaged with, this claim this person has on me because of this covenant I made. There needs to be a way to demonstrate that I've been released from that because listen, maybe she, she's a, away from her, her husband now, they've, they've separated out, they've been divorced, she leaves, she finds some good looking goat herder in town, they, they hit it off, they're like this is a good thing, I think maybe we should bring our lives together, we should get married. Now this goat herder is gonna say, but wait a minute, I thought you were married to that fisherman. And if I try to take a wife that was someone else's, I'm gonna have trouble on my plate and I don't want that. So the certificate would demonstrate this person is free and clear. She is able to move on. She is able to move on with her life. So God regulates, it's fascinating. There's all sorts of stuff I, that, that, that I'm skipping over, but they even created like forms that had to be signed that said this person is free and clear to move on with their life and marry whomever they want so that they wouldn't be people that are overly oppressed and victimized. It had to be written down. It had to be legal so that it wasn't just, well, I'm verbally angry and I'm gonna dismiss you whenever I want and now get over, you know, tough luck. No, it was there to protect the people. And God regulated it. So in this passage, in other places in scripture, it's clear that divorce is a biblical idea, but it's regulated. It's regulated and it's one of those areas where if you were to ask, is divorce okay? It's actually a nuanced answer because it's mostly, well, it depends. It depends. Jesus tells us in Matthew that it's, divorce is okay only if one of the spouses has been unfaithful and has been sexually immoral. Paul then goes on and expands it, and they, they had a fresh set of problems where, where now they're like, well, now I got married when... When, when we were not believers, but now we're believers. I, I mean, now I'm a believer and she's not a believer. So Paul used this term of like unequal yoking. One of them follows Christ, is, is guided and directed by Christ, and the other one's not. Well, what do you do in those situations? And so Paul applied all sorts of wisdom about that. Well, if they want to stay with you, then don't divorce them. But if they want to leave, you don't have to stop them. So there was all sorts of it depends answers. 
But what Jesus does next in the passage that we're in to me is absolutely fascinating because what he does, he says this is what's there. God regulates it. It's a biblical idea. It, it, it breaks the heart of God, but it needs to be regulated. But Jesus does something fascinating. He kind of peels back this layer to some deeper truth that he wants to communicate to his disciples and that he wants to communicate with us as well. And, and I think that it just brings so much clarity to what God wanted us to experience in marriage and how we understand our sexuality. Verse six, this is what he says. He says this, he says, but at the beginning, at the beginning, God made them male and female. Jesus rolls it back and he points to a seminal truth that God created us. Now, at this point, if you're like, I don't know, uh, man, you're going to get into Genesis and Adam and Eve, and I like this place because you've got a rocking band and the pastor's good looking and everything, but now you're going into like this Genesis stuff, and I just was brought up thinking something totally different, so I don't know that I can go along with that, and I just want to tell you, I, I get that. I understand that. I don't blame you, but I want you to know that we as Christians, we believe the whole Genesis thing, the whole Adam and Eve thing. We don't believe that because the Bible says so. We believe it because Jesus believed in it. And so we're Jesus followers, and that means when he says he's going, we're just gonna go with what he said. Because anyone who can say that they're gonna die and raise from the dead three days later and then actually does that, like just carte blanche. We, we just go with what he has to say. So we believe it because Jesus believes it, and he goes back to this fundamental reality about how God created us. He created us in the very beginning, and, and this one statement, I'm telling you we could spend a whole sermon series, God created us in the beginning, and it's this idea of him making us into his image. The Imago Dei is the concept that when he created us, he did not create us like every other animal and part of his creation. He gave us his communicable attributes. We're not like a squirrel or a beaver or a whale. We can reflect his grace and his tenderness and his compassion and his mercy and his, our, our ability to care for other people. He called us in to have authority to regulate and to lead and to care for the world and to call it and to be creative by naming the animals. He gave us authority. We are created uniquely in the image of God. And it impacts so many things. It has so many ripple effects. The first thing it means is this. It means that we're not a mistake. We're not a mistake. The narrative of the world, think about this. The narrative of the world says, hey, you're an accident. Given enough time, enough amino acids rubbing up against each other, Eventually, you're going to, by random chance, exist. And you're here because it's survival of the fittest. And if that's true, then it doesn't matter one bit if the person that has power subjects the person who doesn't have power because that's just survival of the fittest in the first place. But when we believe that God says we're made in the image of God, you know what that means? That means that person that has a different color skin than I do, I love them. They have value, they have worth. That baby that's in the womb is valuable because they're made in the image of God. That tribe of people I'll never be connected with that's being decimated across the planet, that I have no benefit if they live or they die, I care because they're made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And Jesus would look at you and he would say, when I made you, I had my A game on. 
I did not make mistakes. In fact, Ephesians says it this way. Ephesians says that we are God's masterpieces. We're, we're his greatest composition. We're his magnum opus. We're his great poem, the, the word is behind that. So it's not, we're not a mistake, but it also means this. It means that our maleness and our femaleness is not a mistake. We're created in the image of God, male and female, and that's not something that we get to choose. It's not something that we get to curate because God's the artist, and it's built into our very DNA. And people can argue with that, but if you dig up bones from someone who lived 100 years ago, it is baked into their very bones. Every cell is programmed in the maleness and the femaleness, and it's not something we get to decide on. The prevailing values of the world say this. Say, you'll never be happy until you change who you are. You need to change who you were created to be, and then when you express that, you'll finally arrive. Oh, and by the way, pay us $100,000 for all the surgeries that go with that, and if you don't like that, then you're just being hateful and bigoted. And the result of that is unbelievable damage and frustration for people, especially children, are made to feel incomplete if they don't reassign their identity. Our maleness and our femaleness is on purpose. That's what Jesus had to say. And then thirdly, it means that our maleness and our femaleness isn't the same. We were created to be different. And my maleness reflects the character of God differently than my wife's femaleness reflects the character of God. And we won't reflect his glory when we're just one gender. See, the character of God brings order and it nurtures. He provides for those under his care and he brings people in. He is both strong and he is tender. He is wise and he is intuitive. And while males and females are completely equal in value, in worth, and as image bearers of God and are never to be treated with disrespect because of their gender, we are complementary in how we reflect his glory and how we interact with one another. And the culture says the opposite of that. The culture says there is no difference between you. But if I'm a business owner and there's no difference between the man and the woman, then why doesn't it matter if I have all men? Do you ever think about that? There's no difference whatsoever. But if I believe that God created us unique and we all bring something to the table, then I actually have so much to gain when I say I want that female perspective to help me in my business or on my team. It actually values people greater when you see that God created us male and female, he says. And when God made Adam, he put him in the garden and he said it's great that you're there, but he looked at everything, he said it was good and Mr. Giraffe has Mrs. Giraffe and Mr. Falcon has Mrs. Falcon and Mr. Beaver has Mrs. Beaver, but when I look at Adam, there's something missing there because Adam is alone, so his solution was to save the best for last. He created Eve to fix a fundamental problem with Adam and it was this thing, his loneliness was his loneliness. Marriage was established. Adam and Eve coming together because it wasn't good that Adam was alone. And this, this has the power to change your marriage. If you understand this one thing, that the role of your marriage is fundamentally, biblically, is an issue of companionship. Companionship is the essence. Listen, God did not provide Eve for Adam so that he could help her, although she was. God didn't create Eve so that there could be procreation, although it included that. Fundamental, the heart of it. 
was that they would have a covenant companion. And listen, when those two things come together, the union is made stronger, and we better reflect the glory of God. Jay Adams states this so eloquently. I'm gonna read this. As his counterpart, the woman completes or fills out the man's life, making him a larger person than he could have been all alone. Bringing into his frame of reference a new feminine dimension from which to view life that he could have known no other way. Then too, he also brings to his wife a masculine perspective that enlarges her life, making her fuller, more complete than she could have been apart from him. This marriage union by covenant solves the problem of loneliness, not merely by filling a gap, but by overfilling it. And there's someone which, which they can talk things over, someone to counsel, someone to care, someone to share joys and perplexities, ideas, fears, sorrows, disappointments, a helper. A marriage companion is someone with whom you can let your hair down. And listen, what causes frustration in my marriage and what causes frustration in so many marriages is when we mistake the function of marriage. Because when we make it all about sex, now our expectation for how often and what that looks like, that's not a covenant of companionship. That's just using your spouse for means to an end. And when all you want is for your partner to bring home the bacon and supply the needs, then you're not re- and you're not really relationally present with them, that just ends up feeling like a violation. And if you withdraw relationally and spend your entire evening in your room and you don't open your heart to the feelings of your spouse, man, that's not what God had in mind for your marriage. And when your relationship is marked by who has more power and who gets to control the things of the home, that's not a companionship. It's a power dynamic. And when all you have is a list of these are the things that need to be managed in our world and in our home and we just need to hop onto this list, that's management. That's not companionship. Jesus says, this is the reason, for this reason, what reason? Because God created us to be different and when we come together, it's more whole. It's more perfectly reflecting the glory of God. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. It's this old adage of leave and cleave. I'm gonna leave my family and I'm gonna cleave to my spouse. And all sorts of hurts happen when married couples mess that up. When, when, when you say, I'm unwilling to leave my family, but I'm just gonna have my spouse on the side. When you say, I'm gonna look to my children to fulfill my significance and my worth, and I'm not gonna invest in my relationship with my spouse, you're welcoming all sorts of resentment and disconnection. And I want you to think about this. When God created mankind and he placed them in the garden, he didn't create parent and child. He created husband and wife. And this shows us that this primary unit of the family, the most fundamental thing, is that relationship between husband and wife. And this is why someone leaves their father and their mother and they cleave to their wife. Now, as a father of a young Woman, this makes me really uncomfortable (laughs) because I really like my daughter and I really want her to stay with me for all time. But listen, I have to come to grips with this, that the primary relationship for her and her life, if God, by his grace, if she, she doesn't have to, but if she finds a godly husband that loves her and that respects her, that that is now the primary relationship for her and she will leave the covering, the spiritual covering of my home. 
She will leave the physical protection of my home, the resources of my home. She will leave that and she will cleave to her husband. And that makes me massively uncomfortable because I have to trust someone else with her well-being and with her good. That's what leaving and cleaving means. The first relationship is temporary and must be broken. The second is permanent and must not be broken. And then Jesus says this. He says, and the two will become one flesh. The man and the woman, they come together. And this is so unique. This is, this is the defining and a, a critical part about this relationship is that it includes this sexual intimacy as well. It has the power to bond them together like nothing else in creation can. God created it. God ordained it. It is good. It is to be celebrated. It is so powerful that it is something that is to be protected, which is why the stipulation is, listen, if you mess with that, you're going to create damage. This is the picture of it, okay? You know what a fire does? A fire can do a lot of great things. Think of a fire in a home. In a fireplace is like the marriage. When you have the fire in the fireplace, it's gonna bring warmth. You can cook on it. The family gathers. This is really healthy. This is really good. But what happens if you take the fire out of the fireplace and put it on the carpet? It's gonna burn the house down. It's gonna damage. This is why God regulates it. He says, look, this is, is so powerful. This is why you need to be faithful to your spouse. Do you know how hard it is to be in relationships and navigating? It is just hard work. And when you introduce what unfaithfulness introduces into all of that, it makes it almost insurmountable, which is God, God gives permission for that to be one of the reasons that you're allowed to divorce your spouse because it's so powerful. It is wholly unique, this joining of them together. And this is, this is the, the best picture I can think of. I want to use this illustration here. I hope it's helpful for us. Do you, do you know, Kirsten, do you know what these are? Probably not. Tom, do you know what this is? It's a telephone book, right? If you're under 25, you might not. This is what Google used to be. And my, my son, I was showing him this, and he said, Dad, did they have like everybody in it? I'm like, yeah, they had everybody in it in your area, and if you wanted to find them, you would find their name, and they had their address and their phone number, the phone book in it, right? But this is what marriage is like. You are two separate phone books, but when you come together and you become one, it's like these pages all get interleaved together, just like this. And, and the bond of marriage and, and especially sexuality draws you together and binds you together in such, such a powerful way. Now, I want to kind of show you how strong this bond is when they interleave like this. Coda, Oliver, you're very strong young men. Come up here for a second. Okay? All right? You're ish. Ish is good. All right, we'll take ish. No, you can stay right here. All right? So hang on to this. All right, and here's what I'm going to do. Just to make this so it doesn't, not, you know, it's not, not doing anything we shouldn't do here. I'm going to put some C-clamps on this just so that you can hold on to the binding. All right? I'm going to crank it down pretty good. Okay, keep it together there to do the same thing for you, Oliver. All right. You know how hard it is to find two telephone books today? <laughs> they don't exist anymore. So to thank you to Lori Palmer's friend that had them. Okay. All right. You hold on to that one. All right. Very good. And I'm just going to put just the littlest bit of tape just to keep the covers from flopping all over the place. All right. Here we go. It's not holding anything together. It's just keeping the covers together. It did work. Oh, all right. We'll do it again. All right, here we go. 
All right, good enough. All right, give it your best tug without hurting each other. Okay, maybe you're not strong enough. Maybe you're not strong enough. Let's see. Um, uh, Tom, will you come? And Eric, you come too, all right? Need, we need more strength here. We need some grown, grown gentlemen, all right? You hold on to that one. Maybe, maybe you're strong enough. I don't know. Here we go. You give it your best tug. I'm standing back. Oh! All right, so what just happened, though? Did, did, it, actually inter- did it actually unleave? No. No, you tore the binding. I'm sorry you got hurt. I, don't, I didn't mean for that to happen. <laughs> well, that's interesting because this is, this is what, when our lives come together, when our lives come together, that bond is so strong. And what you, when you separate it, it damages people. So in Malachi, it says that God hates divorce. Not God hates divorcees. He recognizes it. He regulates it. But he hates it because it hurts his people. It hurts his people. Listen, th- the reason that the church holds views about sexuality and about marriage and about how all of that comes together, the reason we hold that is because this is how Jesus defined marriage. A covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. It's baked into who we are and we don't get to define it. He gets to define it. Now listen, If someone's outside of our church body, me as a pastor, I don't have authority over them, how they're going to operate, but when it comes to defining us as a church, what our values are, how we're going to operate, we're going to go with what Jesus had to say. That's who we are as a church. And he said marriage was between one man and one woman. But the truth is, statistics tell us that 50% of marriages end in divorce and even evangelical marriages, that's about 42%. So in a church of any size, there's gonna be brokenness and there's gonna be hurt in this area everywhere. And that kind of brokenness shows up in all sorts of forms. It's gonna show up in same-sex attractions and lustful hearts and one-night stands you wish you would have never had. It's gonna show up in, in pregnancies that were before marriage and disconnected and discontented marriages. And what I want to tell you is that I, we, we all have brokenness in one form or another. So the question is, how, how do we respond to that kind of brokenness? What do we do with that? I want to point to something that Jesus kind of shows us his heart. In John chapter 8, these Pharisees, who love to point fingers at other people, they find this woman who is in the middle of adultery, because they walked in on a couple, and they take her, her hair and her clothes, probably still disheveled, and they bring her to the temple courts, and they find Jesus there, and they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the middle of adultery. The law says that we should stone her. What do you think should happen? And Jesus responds and he says, well, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And the text tells us that one by one, starting with the oldest, probably because they were more in touch with their own brokenness, they left one by one until it was just Jesus and this woman that was sitting there. She was on death's door. And now she's at the feet of Christ, a broken mess. And Jesus says this in John chapter 8, 
Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Now listen, listen to what he says next. Neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. We see the love and the mercy and the grace and the compassion of God. But it's perfectly wed with what he says next. Now go leave your life of sin. And too many in the church say it doesn't matter what you do, it's all grace. And there's others that would say it's all truth. Look, Jesus brings grace. John 1 says he's full of grace and truth. And in this one passage, we see the love and the lordship of Jesus. So how do we respond when there's brokenness inside me and inside you and inside us? And how do we respond when there's someone in the world that's saying, how, what are you gonna do about my area of brokenness? Here's how we respond. We simply say this. We say we invite everyone to bring their whole selves, their brokenness, and all of that into the love and the lordship of Jesus. And I, I'm not here to condemn you. I can't condemn you. That's God's business. I'm not gonna be afraid to call sin what Jesus calls sin, but I just as quickly fall on the grace and the mercy of God. We invite everyone to bring their whole self, brokenness and all, to the love and to the lordship of Christ. So that, that same-sex attraction, how do we respond to that? We don't want anything to do with you. We would say, you're too pagan to be here. No, we would say, listen, listen, no, you are welcome, and if you wanna follow after Jesus, we submit to the love and the lordship of Jesus. And that pornography addiction, that sexless marriage, that unbiblical divorce, we bring that to the love and the lordship of Jesus who is there to restore and give hope and life and dignity. Man, this is hard stuff. Can we just for a moment pray about this? And even as I'm talking, you can maybe identify and point areas in your life and your relationships where you would say there's brokenness here and I can't point to some huge sin, but I just feel like I don't always work well in this area or I've got this person, my sister, my spouse, my, it's just in there in this mess. Can, can we make that appeal in our own hearts in prayer? God, would you enable us to live in the love and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Would you, would you just pray with me in this space, in this time, and close your eyes, and, and I know, firsthand know, the brokenness that's in this room. And can we, can we together, can we just pray, can we pray for the marriages that are distressed? Can we pray for marriages to be made stronger? Can we pray against the attacks of the enemy? It was quite on board with the for any reason you can divorce because it just destroys God's people. And can we pray for our, our children as well? because they're gonna be inundated by all sorts of tales and narratives about what marriage and sexuality means. God, I pray for my kids. God, I pray that you would begin now, if it's your will for them to be married, that you would prepare their spouse for them, that they would have a holy and righteous marriage because that's the pathway to their greatest good and 
the greatest happiness in their life and joy. God, we pray for our community. God, I pray for just real wisdom on how to navigate these really like unbelievably challenging social conversations about these areas of gender and sexuality. God, that we would respond with love and with truth and join them together the same way that Jesus did. And it's not easy. It's not easy, God. We need you. We need you in the midst of our marriages, God. We need you to restore the broken marriages where someone has their foot out the door. You are the hope-giving, life-giving, restoring God. God, would we build our lives on you? Would you teach us to be bound and to pursue the love and the lordship of Christ in these areas of our lives that are the hardest? God, would we build our lives on you? Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just want to respond with a simple song. It says, God, we want to build our lives on your faithfulness. You've done in us. In this time, if aim and image, raise up these moments of prayer.